0: Hi, I'm Keegan. And I'm Madigan. And you're listening to Your Angry Angry Neighborhood Neighborhood Feminist. Feminist. This is a podcast where we explore the world through our own
1: personal feminist perspectives. Hello, everybody. Hi. Oh, hold for a loud car. (laughs) I live on a busy street and there is um, a guy who has a car that is so loud and like even my dogs like roll their eyes just kind of look at the window like really (laughs) (laughs) I
0: hate that because I'm just like what are you trying to prove sir nobody needs that
1: It's so douchey. So um, I want to preface this episode with what I was filling Keegan in on before we pressed record, and that is that I attempted to quit smoking for the past 24 hours, and I was an emotional wreck, and I had a bit of a breakdown as soon as Keegan asked me how I was. So thank you for dealing with that breakdown, Keegan, and for uh, allowing me and for my boyfriend for allowing me the space to go back to smoking a little bit. Uh, Not as much, but a little bit. Listen, I will
0: tell the listeners exactly what I just told you. And that is, of course, I am an advocate for stopping smoking. I want my fiance to do it. I want my friends to do it because I love you and I care about your health, of course. But we are all in a really stressful situation right now. And whatever you need to do to help you get through this situation is okay. And I think we all need to be really gracious with ourselves. Like for me, it's been it's been gaining weight. Like that has been difficult for me in quarantine because I'm not moving around as much or I'm eating out of boredom and things like that and I was having a really hard time with it. But I had to kind of take a step back and reevaluate our situation and it's kind of like that is not something that I am willing to put the mental energy into being upset about right now. Good. Let's get through this situation and then we will figure everything else out on the other side and it's okay. Right.
1: And the thing is, is that, you know, I had a conversation earlier this year with my best friend, Katie, when she first moved to LA and she was feeling really unattractive because she felt that she had gained a lot of weight in the past few months. And, you know, she had just started dating somebody new and she was feeling really self-conscious. And I told her that When our body changes, that means it's time for us to then learn how to be comfortable in the uncomfortable. So it's like that means that it's our... It's our turn maybe to examine that. Why do we feel uncomfortable in our bodies right now? Why is this extra weight making us feel this way? Doesn't mean that we can't go back to normal before or do some exercise or eat differently than we are right now, but maybe that means it's time to examine why we feel so crappy in our bodies right now. I've been feeling the opposite because I have no appetite and with my history, I'm really hard on myself when I don't eat enough or when I feel like I don't look a certain way or things like that and I've, I've learned that if I let go of that anxiety my hunger comes back everything's fine if that means that maybe I'm eating extra cookies and crackers and maybe not as many good things you know it's like I, I have to get it where I can and right now we have to be okay with living in that uncomfortable state and maybe having that help us in our future relationship with our bodies well you know?
0: everybody's Everybody is adjusting to this situation, to this isolation, to this fear, to this stress. Everybody is adjusting to it differently, and for some people, that means that they're working out a lot, you know. And for some people, that means that they are stress eating, uh, and you just have to kind of realize this is not a normal situation, right? So you can't expect yourself to behave normally if you feel like you are failing because you're not being productive enough or you're needing to rely on these crutches or these things that you feel like are crutches. It's okay. Have some grace with yourself. It's okay to give yourself a break.
1: <laughs> and that's that's hard for me especially being a person that um is constantly trying to like evolve and better myself and if I'm not doing it I feel like I'm not doing enough like I feel like that's something I'm supposed to do. I don't know. It's very hard to explain. I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. It's like it's hard for me to give myself that break when I feel like part of my story has been, you know, doing so great all the time, you know, and constantly – being better, so when I'm not feeling so great about myself, that's really hard. Um, but this is also very off topic for what we are going to talk about today. Well, that's okay. Very I, important. I think you know,
0: for our listeners, we're all going through this like worldwide traumatic experience in varying degrees, and yeah. I think sharing our experience is. a absolutely fine thing to do and I would actually encourage our listeners to share their experiences we've encouraged them to share the things that they're doing that's helping them thrive throughout this but also share with us your struggles because yeah there's comfort in commiserating (laughs) oh and
1: our our listener from the message about the play she sent us another message to let us know what the play was and what the role was so let me pull that up really quick so you can know Okay, she said, I just listened to the new episode. I was supposed to be playing Isle, I-S-L-E, Isla in Spring Awakening. Oh, my God. Okay. I don't know Spring Awakening that well. I know the first few songs pretty well, though. I fucking love Spring
0: Awakening, and I really hope that she gets the chance to uh, do that show and play that role another time.
1: Yeah, I told her, I'm like, if this is something that you're really passionate about and you really feel a strong connection to, you will find, you'll find a way to be a part of it. You know, I always felt like I lost my chance to play Dorothy, but I know that like maybe somewhere down the line, maybe I can't be Dorothy, but I can be a part of it in some way and it would make me feel good. I've never been in the Wizard of Oz, which is crazy to me. So that's a dream of mine. But um, anyway, should we get to... What we are talking about
0: today? Yes, let's do it. And right off the top, of course, you, Thank you very saw, much, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you saw the title of this episode, so I'm sure you have some idea of what we're going to be talking about today. But I would still like to give a trigger warning for this episode. We are going to be talking about rapes and sexual assaults. So if that's something that you just do not have the mental capacity to absorb right now, again protect yourself mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, during this time, especially. So this may be one that you want to skip or come back to another time. Uh, also, I, I opened that by saying, I'm sure you know what we're talking about, but I had a really interesting conversation with Anthony this morning because he was asking me what we were going to be recording about today. And mm-hmm. I said, and the backlog. And he said, what is that? <laughs> and you know, so... I
1: Max didn't really know either. He'd heard of rape kits, but he didn't really know what it was.
0: Right. Anthony had no idea when I got into explaining to him um, why and the backlog needs to exist because he kind of was like, why does an organization like that even need to exist? And I had to kind of get into it with him about how these kits go untested and how it's such a great miscarriage of justice. And he was very surprised. Yeah. Very surprised. So, um, so yeah, there may be people who don't know about this.
1: Yeah, and I wanted to, I wanted to say as well that in some of my notes there are, there's some language that's used that is uh, medically correct language where I will discuss what happens uh, to create these rape kits, and I think the reason that we need to know. What goes into collecting evidence for rape kits is so important is because we have to understand why testing these kits is so important. These women go through so much with their examinations with these kits. They deserve to all be tested. So there is going to be some graphic language, I guess, used as well. So if you think that's going to be triggering to you as well, turn it off. You know, we won't be offended if you need to skip to the next episode or come back to it later. It's all good. Yeah. Yeah. All right, so let's get started. So first of all, I want to talk about what a rape kit is. I feel like rape kit is something that – it's a phrase that I feel like a lot of people are really familiar with. Um, People are pretty familiar with the fact that women are supposed to go to, you know, the hospital for an examination after rape, as we know, because if people wait to do it, people love to – chastise victims for waiting before going to the hospital.
0: Right. And also, I mean, it should be pointed out, of course, with a sexual assault, a rape, or really any violent crime, the person's body is part of the crime scene. Like that is just part of it. So your body is holding a lot of evidence. And I know, you know, from my own experience with sexual assault, my first instinct because I felt so violated. And this is actually what I did was I went home and I got in the bath. That's the first thing that I did.
1: I so, think that's what a lot of women do before we know to go to, the, go to the doctor, even if we know we're supposed to. Yeah. Even if
0: we rationally understand that that's something that we need to do, there is this kind of biological instinct. I feel like that's just like you feel so personally violated um, and dirty that you just want to get it off of you. And so there is almost a psychological trauma that happens whenever we have to sit in that. Um, We can't wash it off and we have to go uh, and then experience this very invasive
1: Well, and I have to say, I... I hate going to the gynecologist. I don't get my yearly pap smears. Um, I have uh, severe panic attacks when I go to the gynecologist. It's a really traumatic uh, experience for me. So I would never have wanted to go and get this done, <laughs> especially right. now, you know, that I know, but it's so important to do. So let's talk about what a rape kit is. So a rape kit is a package of items used by medical personnel for gathering and preserving physical evidence following an allegation of sexual assault. So the kiss can identify the offender They can prevent serial offenders and they can even help those wrongfully accused get exonerated. So one of the big things with end the backlog is that we need legislature to change. And a lot of times it's, you know, again, the right versus the left, especially right now, you'd think even the right would want these rape kits tested because they're the ones that are always saying that these men are wrongfully accused and all this kind of stuff. Well, Wouldn't you want to prove that by testing these kits?
0: Yes, I was having when I was having this conversation with Anthony this morning, it actually really made me think of our rape culture episode. Mm -hmm. uh, Which, if you haven't listened to that, I would suggest going back and listening to that because I think that the mentality around Um, These backlogs building up in the first place and the way that law enforcement reacts to allegations of rape and sexual assault have a lot to do with the history of rape culture, not only in our country, but worldwide and also the history of rape laws, which we go into detail uh, of in that episode because if for generations you've had this, especially men, and law enforcement is still largely a male-dominated field, um, if you've had this mentality that rape is not that important, uh, one that it's not real, <laughs> two, uh, yeah. you know, then it's it's easy to not make it a priority
1: uh, when it comes to. Your resources. It's really, it's a lack of education. I think a big thing behind that too, is that there is something so violating about this particular crime. And I feel like because it's a lot of men in law enforcement, it's really hard for them to look at those things. And I'm going to be reading a lot of quotes from the book, Know My Name by Chanel Miller, who was Brock Turner's um, victim, which I shouldn't call her Brock Turner's victim, was the victim of Brock Turner the Stanford swimmer rapist. And she talks about when she uses certain language on the stand to testify or when she was giving her account of what happened, she's using these real words and these real terms. And these men would get so uncomfortable and look away or look down and they wouldn't be able to even look at her. And it was the women that were really able to see her and look at her and understand her. And that is something that I feel like more men, especially in the police force need to kind of get past this toxic masculinity behind like women having sex and periods and rape, instead of looking at it as something shameful or embarrassing, and you don't want to look at it, look at it as a violent crime that it is. And I think that there are a lot of male detectives and cops that do feel that way, but there is such a history of sexism in our you know, in our police forces in this country that it's easy for them to maybe look away from these Sexual assault cases. Yeah, and
0: as you were saying, a lot of it has to do with this toxic masculinity, "boys will be boys" kind of culture. When you have Mm -hmm. that culture that exists, and especially is pervasive and prevalent within law enforcement, it makes it very easy for people in law enforcement to say, "Well, I'm sure it was just something that got out of hand. I'm sure it wasn't actually that serious. Uh, All of all of those things. And who knows? It may have even been. Things that these men may have done in the past, and they're seeing themselves. I like. I feel that way a yeah. lot about um, Brett Kavanaugh. We talked about that a lot, where I was mm-hmm. just like, uh, men are relating to him because they themselves have probably done similar things in the past. And, yeah, and if that's we indict they get him out of trouble, right? If we indict this man, that's an indictment on your behavior. Uh, and so they really don't look at sexual assaults as being as serious as other violent crimes. Mm-hmm. Especially also we have this um, idea in this country that equates violence with sex. You yeah. know? And so if that's the case, it's very easy for you to convince yourself that this was just a sexual encounter that got a little too rough or out of hand.
1: You know. Right well and that's and that's part of the issue with calling it a sexual assault. You know, I don't know what else it should be called. You know, I don't like to criticize something if I don't have a better idea for it, but you know, it it puts us in that mindset that there was sex involved and sex has to be consensual or else it is not sex. Right. So when you're calling something sexual assault, there is kind of a weird thing that happens in our brains because of what we identify the word sexual with. So that means that there's gray area then. Did they consent? Did they not? Did they enjoy it? Did they not? How much were they drinking? That's why the justice system is able to poke holes in it, probably just because of the language that's used. It's fucked up. Well, yeah. I mean, and the reality
0: is that while men, of course, are not immune from being sexually assaulted or raped, we would never Mm -hmm. say that there are are male victims. Uh, It's not quite the same as like (laughs) every woman I know has been sexually assaulted or harassed. Um, so it is something that is very prevalent for women, uh, specifically. And so I just think that there might be an element of not being able to relate to this kind of violence the same way that men would be able to relate to a burglary or a mugging or a homicide. Or
1: Or maybe even another man being sexually assaulted. Right. Yeah. Yeah, you know, because we we saw in the red pill episode that they're talking about men being assaulted. But yet it's the same people that um, deny that rape even occurs to women. You know, it's very interesting, their hypocrisy there. So I want to go into a little bit what uh, a rape kit contains. So here are all the contents that's given during your examination. You'll have instructions. There will be bags and sheets for evidence collection. Swabs for collecting fluid from lips, cheeks, thighs, vagina, anus, and buttocks, sterile urine collection containers, blood collection devices, comb used to collect hair and fiber from victim's body, self sealing envelopes to preserve evidence, a nail pick for scraping debris from under the nails, white sheets to catch physical evidence stripped from victim's body, documentation forms, labels, and sterile water and saline. So that's everything that's inside. And later I'm going to go into. what the examination looks like a little bit, just quickly. Um, But that's everything that's inside. And that alone will show you how long these tests and these examinations take. These examinations take
0: approximately between four and six hours, Mm -hmm. which if you've already been sexually assaulted, I've heard a lot of rape victims who have had um, these examinations take place have said that it feels like a second rape. It mm-hmm. is re-traumatizing to them because they are having to make themselves vulnerable physically uh, a second time after they've just been violated. Yeah. And in addition to that, it's not just a situation where they're um, having this examination take place. They are usually concurrently also having to speak with law enforcement and relive that situation again. Yeah. So yeah. when we talk about like why women don't report... I think it's important to point out that they've been traumatized by the rape itself. They've been re-traumatized by this examination. And then there's a high probability or there has been that their rape kit will not be tested anyway. So they went through all of that for what, you know? Yeah,
1: exactly. And then, and then it's the justice system after that too. You know, there's so much stacked against you in these trials and I really do believe that it starts It starts here. It starts at what happens immediately after an assault occurs. So these examinations are given by physicians or nurses, and there are a lot of hospitals in the US and Canada who have uh, specifically trained nurses uh, in collecting evidence and also in emotional support for victims. And as of 2016, there are 700 sexual assault nurse examiners or SANE nurses existing in the US, Canada, and Australia, which is great. So, there are so many places now that specifically train these nurses and hospital personnel how to care for um, the victim's evidence, but also the victim's mind and the victim as a person, which I think is great. Thank God. Yeah, right. Thank God. Yeah. So, you were just talking about how traumatizing this examination can be. And in the beginning of Chanel Miller's book, she talks about, she opens right up with waking up in the Stanford like hospital area, basically. in the quote that she says when she talks about meeting the nurses, she says, that morning I would watch silver needles puncture my skin, bloody Q-tips emerge from between my legs, yet nothing would elicit a flinch or wince or intake of breath. My senses had shut off, my body a nerveless mannequin all I understood was the ladies in the white coats were the ones to be trusted. So for her, it was was these women who were so kind and gentle and thoughtful. And they just kind of like, the way she writes it, it's like they delicately guided her through this process. And they explained everything to her before they did it. And they would kind of like sing songs to each other, these nurses. And she talks about being in this like... Weird state of mind of dissociation almost like she knows she doesn't even know what's happened at this point, though. She was not conscious during her assault. So she's just kind of in this weird purgatory of unknowing. And I loved that these nurses were the first sense of like comfort that she had. I'm really glad that
0: she had that experience because I can only imagine that that is not the experience that everyone has No. and how much more difficult it would be if you didn't have people like that around you. So I do think that the nurses that are trained specifically for this, I think that that is such a a brilliant, wonderful idea. And I'm so happy that they've implemented that, or at least that some hospitals have.
1: Yeah. And I think it's something that needs to be, uh, more publicized like women need to know which hospitals to go to to receive this care because if if you're in a state of panic you're going to go and and you want to get tested you're going to go to the first place that you see and maybe that's not the best place to go
0: yeah and i didn't uh find a comprehensive list of which hospitals have that Mm -hmm. Uh, but i would definitely suggest googling it and seeing if one exists
1: yeah Um, look look up your city and go on the um If you were to go to, I wonder if you were to look up the sexual assault nurse examiner's website. I wonder if they would actually say stuff on there. I'm sure that if you Google your city, you could find some great resources.
0: Yeah. Sadly, it's probably information that we should be aware of.
1: (laughs) Yeah. I, I didn't even think of it when I was writing these notes. That is information that we should all be aware of. So Uh, Keegan, are you cool with me going through a little bit step-by-step of what happens in this examination? Please do. Okay. So first the victim disrobes over butcher paper to collect evidence and the victim's clothing is then examined for trace evidence before being placed in a self-sealed bag. So they deal with all of that first. Then they collect semen, blood, saliva, and other fluids by swabbing the victim's genitals, rectum, mouth, and surface of the body. They collect fingernail scrapings and pluck head and pubic hairs. If the victim consents, the examiner will take photos of the genital injuries using a coltoscope, which uses a magnified image of the cervix, the vagina, and vulva, which can show pre-malignant injuries. So that's really good because um, in a lot of the lists that I was reading, this didn't show up. Uh, they use a paint sometimes that can show abrasions, uh, but this I can imagine would be very, very invasive, especially after being raped or inserted in any sort of way. It would but be horrible. Cool. It would be really
0: horrible. Like, it is, for, but it shows,
1: but it would show pre-malignant injuries. So if they have, so if the injuries haven't shown up yet. This examination can show where you might potentially have trouble in the future.
0: I mean, I think all of it's necessary, and I would hope that you know if i were to be raped that i would go and get this done but it would be horrible like yeah. i can only imagine how when all you want to do i'm sure is just go to sleep forget about it not have to relive any of this trauma this would yeah, be yeah go terrible. back you probably
1: want to rewind yeah and go back and pretend it didn't happen and go back to normal but unfortunately the only way out is through when it comes to this. And it's not your fault for going through it. So it kind of sucks that the victim is the one with the emotional labor, but the only way out is through. You've got to work through it. So the last thing that they do is they take down any medical history. They take down the emotional state and their account of the assault. And I read that during this time, a victim should be able to stop and ask questions at any point during the exam. And they should be able to stop the exam entirely whenever they want to. So I have one more quote here. I have another quote here from Chanel Miller that says hours passed, but their voices soothed me as if we were here to catch up on life, handing me a cup of neon pink pills. Like it was a mimosa. They kept making eye contact. Every act preceded by explanation.
0: I think that that's super important that they really, what I think she's getting at there is that they treated her like a person, yeah. which I'm sure is just what you need at that moment. Like don't, I know that I wouldn't necessarily want to be coddled or treated like a victim because all it would do was remind me that something really awful happened to me. And so it sounds like these nurses in particular were good at taking her mind off of what was happening to her as much as possible, Mm -hmm. Uh, which God bless them. I think it's such a skill.
1: Oh, I know it's amazing actually in the story, how much Stanford supported her. It's pretty cool. Um, All right. Well, let's talk a little bit about the kit's creation. And then we're finally going to get into a bit of the backlog and all of that kind of stuff. So the kit was created by this woman named Martha Goddard, who was a sexual assault survivor. She really wanted to create a comprehensive rape kit. So she started talking to people like doctors and attorneys and judges and different people for what they look for in these uh trials like what kind of evidence they look for she also talked to a lot of like forensic specialists and things like that so goddard gathered all this information and she was 74 when she started this whole thing by the way i, I forgot to mention that part um, so she collected everything but the final design was made by lewis r bitullo so the kit was originally called the Batullo kit. Of course, it was should have been called the Goddard kit. Yeah, of course it was. Yeah. She also learned during this time that if women did not apologize enough, their claims were often dismissed.
0: Right. And that kind of goes back again. uh, If you want the history kind of like a semi comprehensive history of rape laws throughout the world, go back and listen to our rape culture episode. But those the, that kind of mentality was actually hardwired into laws worldwide where rapes wouldn't even be uh, prosecuted or taken seriously in any way right. unless a woman was reacting the way that men expected them to react. And in fact, in England, there was the entire like hue and cry, right? Where it was supposed to be this very progressive thing where it was like, oh, in England, you can actually have a trial for your rape. Um, They're actually quote unquote, taking rape seriously, but only if the woman could present evidence in the form of a hue and cry, which basically means that right after she was raped, she ran through the streets with torn clothing and a a bloody body, like crying. She had to have this very specific reaction. And yeah, I remember you telling that story. Yeah. And if women didn't have that very specific reaction because everyone responds differently to Mm -hmm. being assaulted Um, if women didn't have that specific reaction, their claims were, were not taken seriously and were often dismissed completely. So (laughs) it's not the same in the 1970s, but it's, it was a very similar idea. And even now, even now we expect rape victims to respond a certain way. And if they don't, we question whether or not their assault happened at all.
1: Yeah, we talk about in the rape culture episode what it means to be a good victim, you know, and that's right. something that's really interesting. There's nothing written about how to be a good victim, you know. You could do everything right, and they can still find ways for you uh, to have done something wrong, you know. Right. So I let, mean, yes. All right, so let's get into talking about the backlog a bit, and I'm going to start this out again with another Chanel Miller quote. She says, "There were hundred and there were a hundred in line before me. Some kits kept so long they grew mold. Some thrown out." the lucky ones refrigerated. Immediately, I felt ill. How could that be? This was not fruit rotting. It was pieces of us in each one, an indispensable story. So most jurisdictions
0: do not have systems for accounting or tracking rape kits. Mm -hmm. Uh, So we do not have an actual confirmed total number of untested rape kits nationwide. But conservative estimates indicate that there are 200,000 to 400,000 untested rape kits in U.S. police departments, and large stockpiles of kits have been documented in over five dozen jurisdictions, sometimes totaling more than 10,000 untested rape kits. In a single city, I know that in Los Angeles, I think it was in two thousand nine. I don't have this written in my mm-hmm. notes, so I, I it, could was be t- off. it was
1: it was two thousand nine. I just read it.
0: Yeah, there were something like twelve thousand untested rape kits in. We had the, the highest number of, of untested
1: rape kits. We had the yeah. highest number of untested rape kits. It's crazy. Well, and the other thing too is that most jurisdictions don't have any clear written policies on how to handle the testing of rape kits in general, and they're usually made on case to case basis. So you're do you're doing a different strategy each time you're getting kits for each case. There's right, nothing written that's saying it has to be uniform, you know?
0: You're also trusting your law enforcement to take you seriously, which is something yeah. that we just said is a, a huge um, if you know what I mean, you just happen to get the right detective who's going to take you seriously and push for justice for you, because yeah. that's not always the case. And very often, as we've seen, um, there are lots of people still in law enforcement who do not take sexual assaults seriously. And if it's up to them to make the rules, whether or not uh, your evidence gets tested, then there's a good probability that it just won't.
1: Yeah, then you may be screwed depending on where you are. So the other thing, too, is that there's a lack of training in the power of DNA in some places. Now, I think this has changed even in the past year where we are starting to really understand the power of DNA and how it can solve these crimes. We're seeing it, you know, with the Golden State Killer and things like that. So the more people know about DNA and how it can solve these crimes, very definitely Uh, Hopefully the more kits will be tested. And also we need more training of our just general cops on what you know about sex offenders and criminal patterns and serial rapists and have them understand what's at stake. Right, which I will get
0: into a little bit later, but it is very common that somebody who commits a violent rape uh, will do so again or has done so in the past. And very often there is a pattern of behavior that is serial. So um, I have some information about that that we can talk about a little bit later, but it's part of outside of just getting justice for this victim, which should be enough. Uh, that should be reason enough to test these kids. But outside of that, there is the element of preventing or stopping future crimes uh, yeah. from occurring. It's very important that we take sexual crimes seriously.
1: Well, that should be the number one goal in all of this is to not just treat survivors better, but have there be less survivors in general. I mean... I- <laughs> Like That sounds horrible. No, but I know it. less victims. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. We don't want any survivors. No, less victims in general. Sorry. I've been flipping <laughs> back and forth between those two words and the way I said it sounded horrible. <laughs> no, but I, I knew exactly what you meant. Thank you. No one screened. No one like audio grabbed that and like make it into a meme or something. I don't want to be known as saying that. Um, something I think is interesting too, because you we were just, I was just mentioning DNA. I found it interesting to read that, uh, Now that people do know more about DNA and how it can help us solve these crimes, they're only testing the rape kiss if they don't know who the assailant is. If someone's like, hey, my uncle assaulted me, they won't test the kit. But if you're like, hey, some stranger assaulted me, then they'll test the kit. And again, that kind of goes back into the good victim thing. Like stranger crime, especially with rape, is something that's easier for people to digest, even though most rapes occur within like friends and families, like they're close to the victim.
0: I could also so- see the justification being that they feel like if you know who your assailant is, then we'll find other evidence and we won't use the resources or spend the money to test the kit because you already know who it is. So we'll just, exactly. we'll try and prove this uh, in other ways, which, which doesn't, as we know it doesn't work. Yes. As we know is extremely difficult. Like rapes and sexual assaults are extremely difficult to, pros- to prosecute, they're notoriously mm-hmm. difficult to prove. So yeah. it's, unfair to say, well, we're not, we're just not going to use the resources for this, you know?
1: Right, right. Um, Well, and that's the thing is that they're lacking in resources in general because each test can cost between, or sorry, each kit can cost between $1,000 to $1,500. And we're trying to make it so that the victims don't have to pay for these kids or at least not right away and get reimbursements and things like that. But the thing is, is that these these places that are giving these exams are not getting enough resources to really take care of these victims in general. So then the police aren't going to want to pay that kind of money either. There's just a lack of resources on every level here, really.
0: Right. Yeah. And so like, as you were saying, I got this information off of the, and uh, the backlog.org. Yeah. And, um, they, when they're discussing, the backlog and why it exists. They say, as you said, the first part of the backlog occurs when rape kits are collected and booked into evidence, but detectives and or prosecutors do not request DNA analysis. These kits may remain in a police evidence storage facility indefinitely. This is often referred to as the untested or unsubmitted rape kit backlog. The Joyful Heart Foundation, which I will talk to you guys about in a little bit, Mm -hmm. defines an untested and or backlogged kit as one that has not been submitted to an accredited public or private crime lab for testing within 10 days of being booked into evidence. The second part of the backlog occurs in crime laboratory facilities. So... If they have actually submitted it to a facility, which large numbers, as we've already said, do not, um, oftentimes they will submit it into a laboratory facility and the rape kits are just awaiting DNA analysis because of, like we said the lack of resources. So many kits Mm -hmm. that are submitted to crime labs are not tested in a timely manner, creating the second part of the backlog. The Joyful Heart Foundation defines a backlogged kit at the DNA testing lab as one that has not been tested within 30 days of receipt by the lab. So at that point, it's more of a lack of resources. There aren't enough people or resources to Test these kits. And often if other crimes um, come in, other evidence gets submitted to the lab that they're being told takes priority. So maybe it's a murder case uh, or another kind of violent crime that for whatever reason law enforcement or prosecutors need them to prioritize, very often these kits will continue to be deprioritized and pushed further and further and further back into the backlog. So those are kind of the two ways that these kits can be backlogged indefinitely.
1: Yeah, yeah. I was reading um, some articles. Kind of, they're kind of like journal entries that are posted on the end the backlog website. And there was also another site that I was looking at called natashasjusticeproject.org. dot org. And there were some like uh, journal entries and things saying my I was saying like I had an exam done 10 years ago and I still haven't gotten results like it's just it's very sad and it's yeah heartbreaking to read these stories but they're so important because we need to know that like this yeah. person is waiting 10 years and nothing and oftentimes what happens in that case is
0: there is a statute of limitations on sexual assault and rape in a, in many states in some states there is no statute of limitations on rape as there shouldn't be but in many states there are. So there are also cases where their rape kit will be tested, but by the time that it is tested and they can identify an assailant, the statute of limitations has run out. And so they are no longer able to prosecute uh, their assailant. And so it's just such a flawed, difficult, frustrating system. And so when people ask, again, like why don't people report do you want to put yourself through all of that for it to just yeah. not pan out for you and yeah, traumatize when you could yourself? Maybe just go
1: to therapy and work through it and move on right. with your life. Like it, you right. know, going through this process really is because then this is even before the court process, which is traumatizing all over right. again. You yes. know, all of this is not easy. And I did read somewhere, Keegan, I don't remember which state, but the smallest uh, or the sorry, the shortest statute of limitations in the United States is that some states have a three-year statute of limitation on rape. So right. those rape which- kits could be gone. And also in some jurisdictions, they can go case by case and say, this particular kit can be destroyed within six months. If it's been in there for six months, they can say, it's not being tested. Toss it out,
0: right? And we are going to um, discuss kind of that aspect of it, and because there were many cases in which the survivors were not notified that their kits were being destroyed, and so they had no recourse. Uh, but yes. before we kind of go into that, I wanted to talk a little bit about the Joyful Heart Foundation, because please do the Joyful Heart Foundation. I think is really what brought our attention to the backlog and is what and the Backlog was born out of. Um, so Mariska Hargitay, as we all know, Detective Olivia Benson on Law & Order Special Victims Unit. Oh, yes. It'll be One of my favorite shows. I used to love that show. Uh, so she would get these scripts, of course. And if you've ever seen <laughs> Law & Order SVU, you know that the content of this show can be very uh intense and mm-hmm. its focus is mostly on domestic violence and on sexual crimes mm-hmm. and she began kind of educating herself after reading these scripts about sexual violence and statistics and it really kind of like opened her eyes to how prevalent yeah. this is in the United States she also started receiving hundreds and thousands of letters and emails from survivors disclosing their stories of abuse to her sometimes for the very first time because yeah. she made people feel so comfortable and like she could understand their problems. So she wanted to kind of do something to answer those those letters. And so she created the Joyful Heart Foundation in 2004. And it's a leading national organization with a mission to transform society's response to sexual assault, domestic violence, child abuse, and uh, support survivors healing and end and, and end the violence. So mm-hmm. she has all kinds of programs. Uh, one of her programs is a retreat for survivors. And she also sponsors Heal the Healers, a Heal the Healers program, which supports therapists, social workers, and other trauma professionals, which I think is great because those people, they hear... And see terrible things every day and they need support. She also engages um, men and boys by partnering with one in six and a call to men on initiatives aimed at engaging men as survivors, as bystanders to join the effort to end sexual assault, domestic violence and child abuse. But. The main initiative of Joyful Heart um, has been in the backlog. That is their number one thing that they have really been pushing. Uh, And it's because of them that we have as much attention on this issue as we currently do. In uh, 2017, she actually produced a Best Documentary Emmy Award-winning HBO film called I Am Evidence. I was going to
1: watch that yesterday, and I ended up needing to go outside (laughs) because I was trying to get smoking. I didn't watch it. (laughs) I hear you. I haven't
0: seen it either, but I have HBO, so I really should watch it. Um, Yeah. But it follows the stories of survivors whose rape kits remained untested for years as well as law enforcement officials leading the charge to pursue long-awaited justice in these cases. Uh, as the lead social action campaign partner for the film, Joyful Heart continues to leverage the film as a catalyst for meaningful reform and grassroots activism in communities looking to enact rape kit reforms. So um, I think that that's amazing. I will watch yeah. that documentary, but she's done actually so much good. It's amazing. She's, she's an, an amazing woman. person. Yeah, and um, really without her, I don't know that I would have... I don't know that a lot of people really thought about this issue, (laughs) you know, before like the mid two thousands.
1: Yeah. And there's, that's how to be a celebrity. That's how to use your spotlight. You know what I mean? Like you're on a show that involves a lot of sexual assault that uses very, you know, intense language and has very intense content in it. And for her to be able to recognize that and recognize her status as a celebrity and do such good like that is using your power for good. 100%. Right, and, and I think not it's amazing. Just,
0: because I feel like very often with true crime or um, crime content in general, and this is something we talked about, I think, in our, in our true crime episode that we did. Very often I feel like it can feel salacious or like mm-hmm. we're watching it for entertainment, which, of course, there is an aspect of that. It is entertainment. Uh, But I love that she recognizes that this is triggering for a lot of people, and this is something that happens to a lot of people. And she's built this platform based on this subject matter, this very difficult subject matter. And if she can do something to actually help fix this problem uh, than she's going to. And I fucking love it. I think it's amazing. So
1: So, many rape kits are destroyed as a result of the statute of limitations. And many are destroyed after six months. As I mentioned earlier, they are instructed to by their jurisdiction. And some states, including Washington and Idaho, actually have legislation that requires a tracking system to allow law enforcement labs and survivors to check the status of their kit. And this is really important because it also notifies the survivor if their, kit, if their kit is about to be destroyed. So this is a way for survivors to feel like they have a little bit more control by being able to see where their kit is. Kind of like when we go shopping online or waiting for it to be delivered mm-hmm. and we can check the status of our order. It's a way for victims to know that they're being taken care of and to be able to contact their DA or anybody else that they need to if, if their kit isn't getting tested.
0: Yes. And some kit or some states, I, I liked looking at kind of like the state's response to yeah. the, and uh, the backlog movement. And some states, including Alaska, Indiana, Missouri, and North Carolina have taken steps towards addressing their backlogs by requiring law enforcement agencies to conduct an inventory of untested rape kits in their custody regularly. So mm-hmm. this helps prevent rape kits from either being destroyed or forgotten about because that ho- that happens very often as well.
1: Exactly. Yeah. I mean, that's easy for any of us to do. If it's especially when you're getting caseload after caseload after caseload, being, you know, a cop or something, you could easily be working on something and forgetting about what happened three months ago. Yeah. That might not yeah. be the first thing on your mind anymore. You yeah. know? So we we need fast action because this is a fast-moving world when we're living in a world of crime. It really is, unfortunately. And again, just like people
0: people tend to look at other things as being more important. So mm-hmm. they will continue to prioritize new cases, violent cases, murder cases. Um, other cases, they'll prioritize um, examining that evidence first. So it does become very easy to forget what you have in the evidence locker. You know,
1: Yeah, it is. Well, it's interesting because in the book, Know My Name, Chanel talks about how her DA said, well, you've got such a high media profile case, you shouldn't have a problem. So when she found out that her kit hadn't even been tested yet, she was kind of like, well, you told me not to worry about it. You told me this was going to be taken care of. And then she just kind of felt like, my story doesn't even matter.
0: Well, and what must it be like for people who don't have high profile cases?
1: Exactly. And I think that was kind of a a real awakening as well for her.
0: Yeah. Yeah. If this person who has an incredibly high profile case can't even get their kit tested in a timely manner, what happens to, I mean, the further, again, we go down the, um, marginalized list, right? Like, so what right. happens whenever it's a poor woman? What happens whenever it's a woman of color? What happens whenever it's a trans woman? Like, uh, yeah. their, their well, priority goes
1: down and down and down. It's interesting because Chanel is half Chinese and she looks very Chinese. But with her name, it wouldn't look like that. And it was interesting because she did an interview with the like probation officer before the sentencing over the phone and they put their her race as white and never even asked her what her race was and she does talk about um you know how different marginalized communities are treated differently during that like what would they what would they think if they knew i was a chinese woman i think is what she said in the book
0: right yeah i mean and of course um anytime you are marginalized in that way. If you're poor, you're more likely to be brushed aside because you oftentimes don't have the resources to make a big deal about of it, mm-hmm. uh, about of it, about it. And then also in general, I think people are more likely to believe that you somehow put yourself in a situation like that. Um, yeah. as we've talked about, like black women are hypersexualized and trans women are fetishized. And oftentimes at the uh, receiving hand of sexual violence or just violence yeah. in general. So, I mean, I just, yeah, it's yeah. just.
1: <laughs> yeah. And it's interesting because her case was um, anonymous. She was Emily Doe. And that was also kind of her way of decompartmentalizing her lives. Emily Doe was the one with the deal with court and trauma. And Chanel was, she was trying to keep her, you know, normal and things like that. But there is something interesting about her case being anonymous. And it's good that a lot of victims are anonymous to the public to be shielded from a lot of that abuse. But unfortunately the race and ethnicities of the victims are known in the police and detectives and doctors' minds. Right. Yeah. So another big issue is that they're just inaccessible. So in the U S and Canada, rape kits are pretty accessible Uh, There's lots of resources for us to be able to find. Like we said, Google it. I'm sure you'll find it. But there are other places such as Nigeria that doesn't have proper rape kits because they haven't been introduced there yet. And the thing that's interesting is that I was reading that women in Nigeria are actually very likely to go and get an examination after an assault, but there's really nothing that they can do. And it's kind of unfortunate because these women are saying, yeah, this is fucked up and I need something done, but they don't have the resources there to give a rape kit. Yeah. So the other thing is that once these rape kits are introduced, it's pretty expensive. Like we were saying, they can be somewhere between a thousand and fifteen hundred. 1500. I don't know about you Keegan, but I wouldn't want to drop a thousand or 1500 on a regular Tuesday where something horrible happened to me and have my bank account go down to. I'm sorry. Nothing. You have to pay for your own rape kit. How did I yeah. not find that? Yeah, well, and like when a lot of the rape kits first began to be introduced, yeah, you had to pay for it. That's that's f- extremely fucked up. Yeah, Chanel even got a bill from the hospital and she talked to her DA about it and they said that they can contest it and they will get it paid back. Luckily, in 2005, the United States reauthorized the Violence Against Women Act, which requires states to pay for the rape kit, with whether or not the victim reports the crime or not, because there was a time where... In order for the rape kit to be paid for, the victim also had to immediately then go to the police station for it to actually be tested and paid for and all that kind of stuff.
0: I don't understand that at all. Yeah. I don't understand so, that. That should be part that should come out of our taxes. That should be a public service. I don't get ex- that.
1: Exactly. Well, and as of March twenty fifteen, victims are not required to pay for their exam up front. Well, what that the fuck does that mean? Billed. That they'll be built. (laughs) That's they shouldn't have to pay for it at all. They shouldn't. You really shouldn't. And that's again, that's why places like Planned Parenthood are amazing. Honestly, that's probably the first place I would go. Yeah. It would at least, and if, and if they couldn't give me a kit, at least maybe they could give me some resources, help me find a place where they will do it for a good price. Because yeah, this shit's crazy. It's so
0: frustrating to me and we're, we're running a little long. I'm time timing us right now, but um. It's very frustrating to me to live in this country sometimes because what we are saying is that poor women don't matter. Women without resources don't matter. Poor people don't matter. Um, yeah. And that you are less deserving of justice because of your socioeconomic status. And that is so infuriating to me. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it, it's just, it makes me crazy because I'm just like, we are supposed to live in what they told us all growing up that we live in the greatest country on earth. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? And I'm like, this is what we get as citizens of the greatest country on earth. Yeah. This is bullshit.
1: Yeah. It's a great way of putting it. It's true. So like you said, we're running long. So I've got a few statistics here. Keegan, you are the stat queen. I'm sure you've got a few as well. Should we go over those real quick?
0: Yeah, actually, um, you have the ones that I have, so let's just go over the ones that you've got on your list.
1: All right, perfect. So I'll start us off. 18% of unsolved alleged assault cases from 2002 to 2007 are still sitting in police custody today and was therefore never tested by crime labs.
0: 43% of law enforcement agencies don't have the proper tracking systems for forensic evidence
1: on average 50 to 60% of kits test positive for biological matter that does not belong to the victim. That is a very high percentage. <laughs> over half the time.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Over so half the
1: time. So basically
0: that statistic is just telling you that it is worth it to test them. Like if you're yes. questioning whether or not it's worth it to spend the money on this, um, it absolutely is. And um, to go kind of along with that and why it is worth it, Um, major cities like Cleveland, Detroit, and Memphis have discovered thousands of backlog kits in storage and taken action. These jurisdictions started testing their kits, submitting eligible DNA profiles into the national database, CODIS, and investigating and prosecuting resulting cases. As of March 2020, so last month, Testing of these backlogged rape kits has resulted in the identification of more than 1,320 suspected serial rapists. These serial offenders linked to kits in just three cities, just those three (gasps) cities, so just Cleveland, Detroit, and Memphis – have committed crimes across at least 40 states and Washington DC. They have not just committed rape. They have also been linked to other violent crimes. So if you're asking yourself, is it worth it for us to prioritize these cases and spend the money and the time and the energy that it takes to process these kits? The answer is Yes, it is. Because not not only does fifty to sixty percent of the time the kit test positive for biological matter that does not belong to the victim, but also very often these people are serial offenders who will go on to offend in other states uh, and not just in sexual assaults, but in other violent crimes. So, well, Because
1: we know that escalation is a thing as well. And the more that people get away with, especially if they are sociopaths or psychopaths in any way, they will continue to try to push the boundary of what they can get away with.
0: Yeah, so the longer you let these things sit, you let this sit for 10 years, you finally test it and then you realize in that 10 year span this person has gone on to rape a number of other people or even gone on to commit a homicide. You know, right. so it's very important that these these rape kits are tested and that they're tested quickly.
1: Yeah, well, and another thing is that in New York City, they have every single rape kit tested. They changed that law a while ago. I don't know where I wrote that year down, but now every single rape kit is is tested in New York City. The arrest rate in New York City now for rape is 74%. Good. That's insane. That's a huge jump. And the thing is, is that the reason that these states are finally kind of getting it and making these changes is because of people like Mariska Hargate, the Joyful Hearts Foundation, and the backlog, things like that. And the thing is, is that we are still needing more and more information. So the best thing that we can do is go online and find out if there is a backlog in our state, how many kits are in this backlog, you know, talk to your congressman, write letters, and encourage your state legislature to change these existing laws because the more that we find out about the success rates of these kits when they are actually tested, believe it or not, the results are staggering. They're amazing. And if
0: you want an easy way to contact your representative, you can go to rain.org, R-A-I-N-N.org. And they actually have a form right there on their website that you can fill out. They make it very easy. Mm-hmm. Um, you just enter your name. My name is so-and-so. I'm writing to my representative because I am supporting and the backlog. Um, yeah, and I, I actually
1: I, did that earlier this year.
0: Yeah, so I... I definitely think that that is something that you can and should do
1: yeah couldn't agree more Keegan. could not agree more oh well that was another heavy one in a heavy life right now i feel much better now that i smoked a little bit (laughs) i don't feel as weepy um i'm gonna try to do my best to uh keep it at bay try to be a good girl with it though
0: Oh yeah, but you know, like like we said in the beginning, like everybody just needs to give themselves a break right now. I mean, don't go full like don't make it an excuse to just be completely like unhealthy or do things that are really, really bad for you. But like right, right. we all just need to give ourselves a break. Like I'm I'm just like I can't I I can't. My my brain yeah. is only capable of processing so much. Um, I yeah. do want to end this episode just by saying that there are really great resources for survivors uh, on endthebacklog.org. They have information about survivors' rights and even mm-hmm. a guide to victim notification. So if that's something that you are feeling kind of lost and you need some direction, if you are a um, sexual assault or rape survivor, there are... Resources out there for you. I will link um, and the backlog, joyful heart, and rain in our show notes for you guys. Awesome.
1: Uh, but yeah, yeah, I'll, yeah. Link, I'll link a few things as well. There's so much great information out there; it just needs to be shared. You know? Yeah. And it, we realize this is kind of a heavy episode with everything that we've said about like taking care of yourself during
0: this trying time. Uh, yeah, exactly. But, but it's important. I really do think it's important. And Madigan, this was your suggestion this week. And um, I thank you for suggesting it because I learned a lot. I can't wait to watch mm-hmm. I Am Evidence. I think um, this is something that we should all feel very passionately about.
1: Yeah. And I'm going to go finish Know My Name. I only have about 50 pages left. so Awesome. I'm going to go finish it. Um, all right, everybody, thank you so much for listening to another episode. If there's anything that you want to send in, uh, like we said, this is a very heavy topic. If there's any support that you need from us or want from us or want to share with us uh, some of your thoughts from this episode today, go ahead and email us at neighborhoodfeminist at gmail.com. Oh, and also, we are taking ways that you are surviving and thriving during this time, so don't forget to write in uh, those Submissions as well. You can also write us at Angry Neighborhood Feminist on Instagram. Follow us there as well. We have a Facebook business and group page. Go ahead and rate and review us on our business page and chat with your fellow listeners on the group page. You can also rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. We really appreciate it so much. Uh, And lastly, if you don't already, go ahead and listen to us on Radio Public. It is a free way for you to listen and it helps us out just a little bit. And Twitter. And Twitter. Oh, my gosh. We have a Twitter <laughs> that we sometimes use at YAMF podcast. Y- Y-A-N-F A-N-F podcast. I think we should try a new one during this. I'm going to say Y. You're going to say A. I'm going to say N. You're going to say F. You ready? Okay. I got it. Y-A-N-F podcast. Great awesome. (laughs) We're making adjustments during this time, everybody. It's not going to be perfect. All right. Thank you so much for listening to another episode. With all of that being said, we encourage you to rage on. Bye.